chapter 5 of Revelation today. This is really just, you know, a continuation of what John was seeing last week. There's no shift here. It's just this continuation of the scene in the throne room. And so like last week, we were talking about the idea of, of knowing the future and how that would change maybe your actions or what you're doing. And that's really a big reason of why we study Revelation. And we're going to kind of continue that thought, but look at it a little bit more broadly, that it's not just about ourselves, but knowing the future should impact so much of who we are. As John is getting this vision of the future, there's a reason that Jesus told him to write it down for the church, so that we could have it and we could know it and we could be impacted by it. Again, we'll read through the passage. We'll be looking at all of Revelation 5 today. Begins in verse 1. It says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out, which in, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down. And Lord, we thank you for this revelation of things to come, of your glorious throne room and this revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We get this vision of him as the one who is worthy and the one who praise. We thank you for that. Bless this time we have today to study it. May your spirit open our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, this is, you remember last week, John 
has finished his letters to the seven churches, and when he's done with that, he gets this invitation. He's drawn up in spirit into this throne room in heaven. And he gets this vision of God and these elders and these creatures and the worship of God the Father. And then it's just continuing what he's seeing here. He begins in verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And so as he continues this revealing of what he's being shown in the throne room, he mentions that, that God the Father, as he's sitting on the throne, is holding this book. I mean, literally in their time it would have been a scroll, and that's what he's seeing here. And this scroll, he says it's written both on the inside and the back. You know, in their time, it would have only been customary to write on one side of the scroll. But this scroll must have so much information in it that it has to be written on both sides. As we will see as we continue to study this book, the contents of this scroll are going to be the next 12 or chapters 6 through 18. This scroll contains most of the content of the book of Revelation. We see it is as full as they're in the hand of God the Father. And it says that it is sealed with seven seals. It was mentioned to me last week that I have at times mentioned what numbers mean, but I hadn't in a while, and I think I may take some time to actually go through a lot of the different numbers we'll see in Revelation and, and what we see from other scripture. But we know that the number seven is the number of completion or perfection. So we see these seven seals that they are holding this together. God has sealed this with his number of perfection. Can point to the profound nature of this, that this is God's revelation. I think it also points to this, that what is contained in there is absolutely unchangeable, it's unreachable, it's unattainable, because God himself has sealed it with seven seals. In John's day, that if you wrote a seal, or if you wrote a scroll, if it was a message to someone else, it contained something important, you would put this, a seal on it, it would keep the contents of the document secret, free from being messed with by anyone as it was transported to the recipient. And so this is a common concept to John to see a seal and have seven of them there would have showed the importance and the protected nature of what God is holding. Look at verses 2 and 3. John continues, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open this book and to break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Again, the NASB that I'm reading from translate this as book. In the Greek, literally, it's, it's biblio, but it was used for a scroll, but it's, it's what we get our word Bible from. It's just literally book. And so it's not a bad translation, but we don't think of seals on books, and yet it's easy to visualize a scroll with the wax melted onto it. So that's why I will continue to refer to it as a scroll, even though our translation... But John sees this angel, this strong angel. We are not given the identity of this angel. We don't know who he is. But the, the fact that he has a loud voice denotes authority. We are told that he is strong. And so this strong angel with authority calls out. 
the scroll has become apparent in God's hand. And he says, who is worthy to open this scroll? They needed someone with sufficient authority. Not just anyone could open what God held. Anyone could have, I think what this is pointing to is that anyone could read and reveal what God had written down. But the person with authority was the one who would be able to carry out what God had written down. The one who had authority to fulfill God's plans. And I think in this, I mean, one of the things we'll get to at the end that we get from Revelation and we've talked about is that we have to be able to find hope in knowing the future. And here we think about the present and how easy it is to see our world falling apart and to think that, I mean, everything looks like it's turning more and more against us and what about my children and what if if the Lord tarries and my children have grandchildren what is the world going to be like for them but we see here God Almighty in his throne room on his throne is the one with his plans of the future and they cannot be changed and not just anyone is able to open that and to fulfill them continues in verse 4 John says, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. When he says weep greatly here in the Greek, it has this idea of continual weeping. That he's just so overwhelmed with grief that he cannot stop weeping. It's not talking about how loud he's weeping or it's just this overwhelming grief that does not allow him to stop. I think in times as an adult in my life, I have, I have felt great grief, but I think often to my own childhood or, or seeing my own young children when they were younger, the younger ones now, that when something is really upsetting to them, I mean, you can't get them to calm down. I'm not always the greatest one at calming them anyways, but to stand next to my wife and to hear her say, I mean, just take a breath. <laughs> but it's almost like they can't because the... The sadness and the grief is just, there's nothing else they can think about. And it's just wail after wail. And that's what John presents himself. And this, the feelings overwhelm him when he sees that there is no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth able to open this scroll. And I think in John's perspective... He's being taken there in spirit, but he's still alive in his unglorified body. He's lived an entire life. He's an old man at this point under the reality of who we as people are after the fall. That prior to the fall, something we've looked at in the past, that God gave a command to Adam and Eve to take dominion and to rule over the earth, but that's never repeated after the fall. And as people... We live in a world that God has given the dominion of to Satan, to where he could offer Jesus any of the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, when he was on that temple, and Satan is tempting him, and Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world, Jesus rebukes him at the thought of him bowing down to Satan, but he does not rebuke the idea that he has that power and authority, that this world is ruled by him. That's why he's called the prince in the power of the air. And this is the reality that we live in. And John, in seeing that, no one is able to open it. He is just overcome, overwhelmed with grief. 
he was desperate to see what God's plans contained. I have read from some that they think that it's this idea of that, that John, as a Jew, is looking forward to God's redemption of his people and judging others, and I think that's all a part of it. But I think mostly to be in God's presence and in his throne room and to see his glory and to know that he has a perfect plan that is as perfect as he is. And it was just, no matter what was in there, John, he needed it. And so he weeps continuously. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. One of these elders comes to him and he says, Stop weeping. There is one who can do this. One who has achieved victory over all of God's enemies and therefore has the power and authority to open this scroll. And he describes him as the Lion of Judah. And this takes us back to Revelation 49. Jacob is giving blessings and prophetic utterances to his sons of what the future holds for them. And to Judah, Genesis 49 Verse 9, Jacob says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches and he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? As Jacob is giving all of these prophecies, really, to his sons, Judah is the line that Jesus would come through. And that is what Jacob is prophesying there, that this lion is brought forth in the person of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, our Lord. And this elder here says that him, it's the Lion of Judah and the roots or the offspring of David, prophesied that the Messiah would come from David's line, which is shown to us in the genealogies in the Gospels, that he was a descendant of David, that he was able to sit on David's throne as his descendant. These are both titles of in the Old Testament, the prophesied Messiah. In the New Testament, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this is the only place in the New Testament that those two titles are used together. But Jesus is God's anointed one. And as that, he alone possessed the authority that was necessary to open the scroll. Again, he's the one who overcame Satan and death he would be able to implement God's plans in the future. The plans that this scroll. In verse 6, he says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So John is told that one is coming who is able to do this. It's the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, meaning his descendant, his descendant who will reign forever. These are both images of power and strength. And yet when John sees him, he sees him as a lamb. Adding more to this contrast, the word for lamb here is actually the diminutive form of the word, a little lamb. That in a lion you have power and strength and it connotates fear. And yet Jesus 
appears here as the lamb that is slain. He comes forth in this vision of meekness. You know, the lamb is, is Jesus in what we think of it. You know, in his first coming, he is coming. He came as the lamb, the sacrificial lamb for us. John refers to him as a lamb, and Peter does as well, but there are almost no other references to Jesus as a lamb outside of John's writing in the New Testament. And that's what John sees him here as first. You're expecting him coming in, in power and strength. He appears as this lamb that was slain, or as if having been slain. What he's saying there is he's alive. This lamb is coming and it is alive, but it bears the marks of having been slain, like Jesus in his resurrection, being able to show the disciples his hands and his feet and having Thomas touch his side. He bear, bore the marks of his crucifixion. And so this lamb here comes forth in all its meekness, showing the marks of it having been slain. But this lamb is there and is standing in the midst of the throne, ready to complete what God has for him. He describes him as having seven horns and seven eyes. Again, seven being the number of completion. In the Old Testament, a horn is often a representative of power. We saw that in Daniel, when we were looking at Daniel's prophecies and the beast coming up that had the horns and the one horn begins to speak. And these, this is a representation of ruling and power. And so Jesus having seven horns is this idea of his ultimate power, his omnipotence, and his seven eyes, wisdom being his omniscience. I think that in our English translation, it looks like the seven eyes or the seven spirits. I think the clause there in the Greek can be read that it's both of those things. It's his, his power and his wisdom and knowledge that are carried out by the seven spirits of God and to all the earth, that his, who he is, his power, his wisdom is carried out by these spirits. This lamb, even in his meat, is this all-powerful, all-knowing, really warrior king that is ready, again, to carry out God's plans. Verse 7, And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And this is a short verse, and it seems straightforward. I thought it was really interesting in, in studying what John's saying here. John sees Jesus, the Lamb, come and take the scroll from God the Father, the the way the Greek uses the word took here, it's this dramatic use. It indicates this enormous shift. I've heard it described as like, I mean, you think that one thing is for sure going to happen, and then an event changes everything. When I was younger, I used to watch lots and lots of sports, and I enjoyed watching basketball. My dad would always say, I, I can't stand basketball. I mean, it can be going one way the whole game, and at the very end, the other team wins. I th well, I think that's what makes it exciting. I mean, you're rooting for a team. They're losing. You don't see any way of it coming back. And then someone, you know, hits a buzzer beater, and the, it changes everything. You go from this dread, oh, my team is going to lose, to absolute joy because of the win. And that is the idea of what John is feeling here when he sees Jesus take the scroll, that it changes everything. 
that he goes from his weeping to a realization that the lamb will fulfill what God has in store. This transfer of authority from God the Father to Jesus to carry out the plans that he has. Let's continue in verses 8 through 10. It says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and a golden bowls, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So that shift that John sees this, as Jesus took the scroll and it changes what is about to happen, it is reacted to by the elders and these creatures that we had seen in chapter 4, but they immediately begin to worship him. It triggered this outpouring of praise because it signaled that Christ would begin. And so these Four living creatures and the 24 elders, they, they prostrate themselves. They lay down in worship. In the Greek text, I think it points to it's just the elders that have the harps and the bowls. It is not the... But they are using this song and these harps to bring praise to God. And in our time of prayer this morning before Sunday school, I read this verse, and I just think it's, it's such an interesting thing. I mean, when we pray... And there are times when we are praying in desperation and there are times when we are praying in joy and there are times when we are praying because we know we need to pray, but we need to realize that in all of these situations, our prayers are precious to God. And we see here in this, this vision that John is having that as these elders are carrying these bowls to God, there's something precious contained in these bowls and the precious thing is the prayers and I think that this really is what this is, what these prayers are, are the unanswered, unfulfilled prayers of God of the coming of his kingdom. The prayers that he is answering by bringing judgment on the earth. That he has let sin and death continue on this earth. These things that we experience in our own lives of of sin, and we see it in the world around us, the world that doesn't have Jesus, that it just, it is overwhelming, and like it's so often described, it is, it enslaves you, it binds you, and it controls everything, and it ultimately leads to death, and this has been the case on earth since Jesus, but he has defeated those, and now we are finally going to see, we're looking at this, the idea of these prayers being brought to and we see in, in Luke that the, the Jews throughout Old Testament times had this idea of uh, their prayers being like incense going up to God. Um, you see in Luke 1, it talks about them praying at the hour of incense. So they would do that symbolically because they view, that's how they viewed their prayers. And so we see these prayers that have been prayed, I think, by the saints throughout history. I mean, the church at this point is in heaven. This is post you and me on earth praying 
in God's presence, and yet the prayers that we have prayed now are so precious to God, these ones that are unanswered, unfulfilled, are being brought to him. Verse 9, as they sing this new song, the, the new there, the Greek word for that, the literal, most literal translation of that is fresh. And so I think it's, it's different in quality, I guess you could say. It's, it's not something completely new as in time, but it has this new essence to it because of what he's about to do. And in this song that we see in verses 9 and 10, we'll read it again. Worthy are you to take up the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So in this song, this new song, this fresh song they are singing, there are four reasons why Jesus is honored as being worthy to do what he is about to do. And the first is his death, that he was slain. As we read in Philippians, that that was his obedience to God, that he willing, he's absolutely equal in every way possible to God the Father because he is God. But yet as the person of the Godhood that, Godhead that is the Son, he willingly submits himself to God the Father, and he did that in obedience and went to the cross. And because of that, they say he is worthy. And he did it, and it shows us here again that he did this so that he could redeem men. He could redeem people from all over the world. Now, this is not saying that everyone will be saved. This is saying that those who have received your gift through faith, that you have bought them back. A, a universal offer that has been accepted by people everywhere. All tribes, tongues, nations. I'm sorry, that I got ahead of myself. That the redemption of us is the second reason for his praise. The first was his death. The second is that he redeemed us through his death. The third reason that he is given praise as being worthy is his creation of a kingdom, a priestly kingdom. You know, as we think of a priest, their, their main objective was to be the, the go-to between man, Israel, and God. And so as priests as part of a priestly kingdom we have direct access to God and the fourth reason for praising Jesus is for him in doing this and giving us the opportunity to reign at the end there of verse 9 they will reign upon the earth that this is and he's not doing this for his own glory, as we see, in, as we saw in Philippians 2, what we read earlier, that God will give him, bring him glory, give him the name above all names, but yet that he has given us this opportunity to reign with him. And it's because of these things that he is, he is worthy to do what he is about to do, and he is worthy of receiving praise. Go ahead and read 11 through. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and were. This uncountable host of angels joins in. He joins in with the four creatures and the 24 elders, or they, in praising Jesus, praising the Lamb who deserves all power and riches and wisdom and might, honor, glory, and blessing. These things that only Jesus. And in this vision, John goes on to say that every living thing is giving him praise. And again, I think this points back to what Paul is talking about in Philippians 2. And this is what uh, we would refer to as a propletic vision that it happens a lot through Revelation where John is seeing something and God also gives him a vision of something that is to come. And so there's this praise for Jesus from those who are in God's presence and yet also everything, every creature is going to praise his name because of who he is. As Philippians said, we will all bow. But again, on this time at earth, this is not the time where every creature is in that place. In fact, the earth is in complete rebellion to God, awaiting his judgment. And this worship, John's vision, culminates with the four creatures saying, Amen. Let it be. And they're repeating this. And the elders again worship by falling prostrate before God's throne, giving him ultimate reverence and all. Interesting, in Sunday school this morning, we're looking at Samuel becoming king, and Andy had asked the question of, you know, about what's continually going wrong with Israel. And you look, I mean, we studied judges for months. And as we got to the end of the book, it says, and there was no king in Israel. Well, there was. It was God, but the people did not worship him as God. They did not submit to him. And that led to the things we talked about, disobedience, all these things that you see and the terrible results of them. At this point, we see in perfection before God's throne, complete submission to him as the ruler of everything and to Jesus, the one who is carrying forth. As that vision concludes, I mean, this is a beautiful thing for us that we know as Paul, Paul said that Romans 8, he doesn't consider the sufferings of this world to compare to what is to come. And that's what we see. This is what is to come. That nothing we experience here, deaths that are so tragic, infirmities and handicaps and hardship, none of it compares to what we will get to experience. So we come back again to this idea of this is why we are, I think in this chapter, especially these two, we really see why we're studying this. In Revelation 1.3, it says that, you know, whoever reads these words or hears them is blessed. Well, why is that? It's because they can know and they can let it change their life. It, I think it's made clear in Revelation 22 at the very end in verse 7, 
Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. It is that hearing it and letting what you have learned take action in your life. And this book can change your outlook and it can change what you're doing and it can change how you see things. And so I look at these things things and I see really three reasons for studying this book that can change your life. And we have this revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It isn't just judgment and stuff you can't understand. We are having the eternal Lord revealed in his glory to us. The person that we have put our faith in for eternal life, the person that we serve, we see who he is. And that should bring hope in any situation. To bring about that idea that Paul had, that it doesn't matter what's going on in my life now, I know what is to come. And for Paul, who was martyred before this book was written, he himself had been given a, a view. He says that he pulled up into the third heaven. We realize that he had an inkling of what was to come. And John here gives the rest of us that vision. And again, as we looked at last week, I mean, that should give us this inspiration as Jesus talked to his seven churches. and He said, this is what you should be doing. If you overcome, I will provide you with this. He who has an ear, let him hear. This should inspire us to be living our lives for him and doing the things that are pleasing to him. We see the elders here, the overcomers, those that have, they're not only there and in his presence, but they have this opportunity to, at the forefront this intimate relationship and worshiping him. And lastly, what we are getting to in the next section of this, chapters 6 through 18, is judgment is coming. Jesus is the one who is worthy to take that scroll and to open it and to bring God's plans about on the earth. And those plans, because God is a just, holy God, those plans are judging sin on this earth. And so if you can read this and not look at the world around you and say, this world needs Jesus, then you need to read it again. Because to all of those that we know and that we love who have not come to that realization that I am a sinner, there is a gap between me and God that can only be bridged by Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And then he says that I need to believe in him for eternal life. And if they have not done that, then these judgments that are to come, they are facing. And in these two chapters, we see all of these things, this this hope that we can have in who Jesus is and God's sovereignty and him holding the scroll. Something I I don't think I did mention. I think it's this beautiful image of him being both the lion and the lamb. He is, we realize in his second coming, when he comes at the end of tribulation, as he comes on the white horse, to battle the forces of the earth that have gathered against him, to come back to this earth and to take his kingdom. We see him coming as the lion, but as he's presented here, after the rapture, during the tribulation, before these judgments are poured out on the earth, he is still the lamb. The lamb that came in meekness to seek out and to save the lost. This is the Lord that we worship. These two chapters, it's this, and you go from 
an introduction to these letters to the churches, and then all of a sudden John's called up into heaven. Well, this is, it needs to be impactful in our life. There's so much in here giving us this, this very real thing that is going to happen. This isn't just some vision that John has of some fantastical thing that maybe gives a representation of God. No, God is giving him a vision of something that is to come. That this throne room isn't something that, no, he's picturing God in a very real place, on a very real throne, and Jesus coming forth is the one who is worthy. So I hope as we, we read this, it isn't just stories and, I mean, let it sink in. Be the one in Revelation 22, 7 who is blessed, not just by reading, but by heeding, by taking these words and letting it change our lives. Pray with me as we...